The MMA on the Rocks podcast is intended for adult audiences and does contain some explicit content. So if you are not an adult, please make sure your parents do not know you are listening to this and do not repeat anything you hear on this show in front of them. Also a reminder that even if you fight recklessly, please remember to drink responsibly. Now that we have that out of the way, let's get to the show. Okay, MMA on the rocks. My name is Bill. I'm going solo on this podcast today. I'm actually broadcasting from Burlington, Vermont. So you probably figured out that I do quite a bit of traveling. So I'm up here in Vermont for Labor Day weekend, and it's really a great place to be for Labor Day, especially for someone like myself who enjoys good food and good drinks. So when I first got up here, the second day I went to the Burlington Farmer's Market and it's different from any farmer's market I've ever been to. One, because they sell liquor, which is very interesting. And two, it's they take it very seriously here. And 75% of the vendors have to have an actual owner in the company representing their booth. So it, it's huge. I, I think there were probably over 100 booths, and, and it was just a good time. So... I'll get a little bit more in detail about that. I also visited some awesome breweries while I was here, so I'll talk about those as well. UFC Fight Night 93 in Hamburg, Germany was kind of a dud, punctuated with some exciting moments. Um, And then we'll do our community shot segment, which is, um, you know, friends on Twitter who reach out with their comments and opinions, and I share them here on the show. And we'll talk a little bit about Ultimate Fighter Season 24, which debuted this week. So we'll get into all of that. But let me get back to, real quick, the Burlington Farmer's Market, which was really a unique experience. And like I said, they they do have some liquor vendors there. So one of the ones I visited was called uh, Elmbrook Farms. And they're a farm that makes spirits out of maple syrup so as most of you know i'm sure a lot of spirits are made from fermented sugar so you can get sugar from different types of products so this farm actually makes vodka from from maple syrup sugar not too surprising since maple syrup is one of the biggest products made up here in vermont uh and it's it's distilled 23 times the literary dog vodka that I sampled there and I actually bought a bottle of it from from the vendor. Very interesting, very very smooth vodka. So you could sip it on the rocks as as I prefer to sip most things. I'm not a huge vodka drinker, but um I was impressed with how smooth this vodka was. Or you can mix it with something else. So the other thing I picked up also was a uh Caledonia Spirits Bar Hill Reserve Tomcat Gin. So Caledonia Spirits does something very interesting. Like I said, you can make liquor out of any kind of sugar. So what Caledonia Spirits does is they make their liquor out of honey. So they ferment the honey, which you know is, is pretty typical. It's done in, it's been done forever with meads and things like that. I've never seen gin done in this way. So they make a vodka, a gin, and then they make um, oak aged gin, which is uh, you know, a darker, uh, brownish colored gin, almost a whiskey type vibe to it. 
So I'm not a big gin drinker at all, but because it was oak aged and it had that oakiness and it kind of resembled a whiskey, uh, I picked up a bottle of this, which is actually what I'm drinking now. And I, I combined it with another another vendor that was present at this farmer's market was the Northern Bayou Cold Brew Coffee Company. And they make a cold brew coffee that is actually uh, flavored with hops. And I'm sure most of you know hops are used to brew beer. So if you like beer and you like coffee, check out Northern Bayou Cold Brew Coffee Company. So I, I bought a, a couple of bottles of their cold brew, which was really good coffee. You could drink it just over ice. It's, it's concentrated, so you'll have to dilute it with water or almond milk like I like to do or, you know, skim milk, whole milk, whatever you like with your coffee, and then dilute it either with a lot of ice and let it sit for a little bit, or you could dilute it with a little bit of water, either way. So what I'm doing now is I combine the Tomcat gin, the oak barrel aged gin, with the Northern Bayou hopped coffee. And I'm just drinking that on the rocks um, because I need to wake up a little bit to do this because I don't actually just drink and watch fights all the time, though it may seem that way for people who are regular listeners of the show. I went down to the Burlington bike path today, and I biked about 26 miles. So I stopped for a beer at the beginning, and then I stopped at a brewery at the end again. So I biked a marathon today, so I need a little bit of cold brew coffee mixed with my gin, and it actually tastes really delicious, and it's hitting the spot right now. What didn't hit the spot for me so much was UFC Fight Night 93 in Hamburg, Germany. It was headlined by Josh Barnett, who is one of my favorite fighters of all time. Always exciting. Such a genuinely nice guy. I met him in person. And Andre Arlovsky, who's another one of the all-time greats. So for someone who's been a, fan, a long-time fan of MMA, this is kind of a dream matchup that you know we always kind of hoped would have happened uh, 10, 15 years ago when these guys were both in their prime. Not that they're not now. I mean, they're both top 10 fighters. Uh, I think Orlovsky was ranked number six going into this and Barnett about number nine. But this is a fight that, you know, dedicated fans would have liked to see a while ago when, uh, you know, they just couldn't cross paths for whatever reason. They were supposed to fight uh, around 2008, but the, the fight just never culminated. And really a fantastic main event. This really capped off what was otherwise a very lackluster card that was punctuated with a few exciting moments. One of those exciting moments was Ryan Bader's knockout of Alir Latifi. But before I get into that, uh, I just want to give my breakdown of the Arlovsky-Josh Barnett fight. Right off the bat, this fight was exciting. They, they came in there and they both rocked each other in the first round. And these are guys who both have knockout power in both hands. Uh, I was surprised to see Arlovsky swinging as wildly as he did. Usually his boxing is a little bit cleaner. And I don't know what his motives were there. Maybe because Barnett has very tight boxing. He keeps his hands up high. Maybe Arlovsky's strategy was to swing wildly and try to break through Barnett's defense. I don't really know. But that was his strategy uh, going into this fight. So... Arlovsky looked looked pretty good, and, and he landed some clean shots on Barnett in the first round. The second round, I scored it 10-8 for Barnett. He got taken down, and then he was able to reverse Arlovsky the second time he attempted to take down. 
let me correct myself. Barnett got taken down in the first round, and then in the second round, he was able to reverse Arlovsky. The reason being, Arlovsky took him down with a body lock trip. So that's where you wrap both your arms around your opponent's waist, and then you trip him with one of your legs. Now, why that's dangerous against an experienced wrestler like Josh Barnett is because he realized that Arlovsky was going to try and do that again. So when you have a body lock, which is, like I said, both of your arms wrapped around your opponent, you have nothing to post with if your opponent tries to reverse you. So with both of your hands tied up, Barnett was able to reverse that position. He was able to pass Orlovsky's guard fairly easily, and he beat him up pretty bad. Uh, borderline, you know, close to being stopped at the end of that second round for Barnett. Um, had him mounted, and he was just dropping some heavy leather on Arlovsky's face. In the third round, it looked bad for Barnett at first when he caught a thumb in the eye, and he turned his back to Arlovsky and went to the cage. Now, for those of you who have listened to the show before, you know that I'm the, of the opinion that once you turn your back on your opponent, it should be stopped by the referee. Uh, in this case, for Barnett's sake, I'm glad it wasn't because he did come back, and he did recover from that thumb in the eye. But it, it did look pretty bad, and his his eye was really bruised and purple at the end of it. But he didn't hold any grudge against Arlovsky. He said he did what he had to do. Even after Barnett turned his back, the ref didn't stop it, so Arlovsky came in swinging, and Barnett doesn't hold any, any qualms about that because he knows Arlovsky was just doing his job. And that's what Barnett said in the post-fight press conference. So what he was able to do is he was able to get a, a double wrist lock on Arlovsky when he was coming in for a single-leg takedown. So Arlovsky dove for a leg, and Barnett locked up the double wrist lock. Uh, for those of you who train jiu-jitsu or who watch a lot of UFC and listen to Joe Rogan's commentary, you may know this as a Kimura grip. So this is when you basically have one arm around your opponent's arm and one arm controlling the wrist, and you grab your own wrist. Uh, it's really hard to explain without a visual, but... If you watch the fight, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So it's basically like a takedown reversal. So he was able to use his catch wrestling skills there, got Orlovsky to the ground. It looked like he really wanted to get the TKO, and he was dropping some heavy bombs again. But as the round was coming to a close, he was able to sink in a rear naked choke that looked like it was just crushing Orlovsky's jaw, and Orlovsky tapped. And this is so impressive on Josh Barnett's part because he was the first person to ever tap out Andre Orlovsky, who is a, a veteran of so many years. I mean, he's been KO'd a couple of times. His, his his nose looks like silly putty at this point because he just never gets it fixed when he gets it broken and smashed, I guess. Uh, but Josh Barnett, first person to ever submit Orlovsky, you know, you can't say enough about how impressive that was. And he did walk away with two fight of the night bonuses. So he got a performance of the night for his submission. And both of these guys got fight of the night, which I couldn't agree with more because this was by far the most exciting fight on this card. So I'll drop down to the co-main event, which was really disappointing in my opinion. It was Alexander Gustafsson against Jan Blakovic. I'm probably saying that wrong which bothers me because I'm kind of a stickler about pronouncing these fighters names correctly but this was disappointing for me I I scored the first round a draw so I actually scored this uh 30-28 for for Gustafsson um he did dominate uh Blakovich for the second and third round he took him down and just kind of laid in his guard and didn't even attempt to pass his guard 
until, I don't know, two minutes, maybe a minute and a half left in the third round. So really disappointing showing here. And it, it looked like he had to take him down because he was getting bested on the feet. Um, and let's call this what it is. This was a fight that was spoon-fed to Gustafsson to give him a highlight reel finish. So it's held in Hamburg, Germany, which for those of you who aren't too keen on geography, I'm not myself either, but Hamburg, Germany is in the northern part of Germany, which is uh, bordered by Sweden. So I'd say probably an hour from Stockholm. So pretty much a hometown fight for Gustafsson because people from Stockholm obviously came down to watch him in this fight. Jan Blagovic ranked probably 15th in the light heavyweight division. So this was a fight to highlight Gustafsson and probably the UFC was hoping that he would get a highlight reel finish and and they could justify getting him back up there into title contention since he came off of two losses and he hasn't had a win in a while, but he is a fan favorite and... Uh, I, I personally would have liked to see him do a little bit more and and stand up in this fight and really have faith in his boxing skills. Blackovich couldn't really do much. Uh, he's a brown belt in jiu-jitsu. He tried to, tried to get back up, but for the most part, he was playing dead fish on his back. Um, it, it didn't look like he was going for any sweeps or, or trying to hold Gustafson down so he would get stood back up. So really a lackluster fight and really kind of a boring performance in my opinion and I hate to say that because these guys are all warriors and they get up they get in this cage and and they they give their all but considering that this fight was tailor-made for Gustafson to perform well a little bit disappointing in my opinion what wasn't disappointing was Ryan Bader's spectacular knockout over Lear Latifi now Bader was coming off a rough loss against Anthony Rumble Johnson, in which he shot for a double-leg takedown from 50 yards away. Uh, it looked like he, he shot for that takedown from the eighth row of the stands, not even from inside the octagon. And Rumble Johnson made him pay for it, and he just smashed him. Uh, in this fight, I thought Latifi was winning the first round. Uh, I thought he was mixing things up pretty well. Both of these guys are very high-level wrestlers. Latifi is a national champion. Uh, from Sweden, and Bader, All-American wrestler, as we all know. Uh, so they kind of neutralized. Latifi dropped levels a couple of times, and he went for a body lock. It didn't look like he was really going for a takedown, but he was just looking to pin Bader up against the cage. And it was working. He, he was really throwing Bader's rhythm off in the first round, and he, he landed some heavy shots. But he, uh, I guess Bader was timing the level change, and he came in with such an explosive knee in that second round, and he sent Latifi flying. And I retweeted a picture. You know, people went to Photoshop immediately. I retweeted a picture of, of Latifi with his, it was Photoshopped. He had his arms up in the air, and it looked like he was playing a trumpet. <laughs> and um, I'm sure the internet's going to have a lot of fun with this. Other than that, there's really not a lot to talk about for the whole rest of this card. I could touch on shit. Yeah, there's really not a lot... Ashley Evan Smith is a, is the other standout on this card. The only other thing that I can say is a positive coming out of this. She was very dominant over her opponent, uh, Veronica Macedo. And Macedo, very high-level jiu-jitsu practitioner. However, it was her UFC debut. 
So she and she did come in on short notice as well. But you can't take anything away from Ashley Evans Smith. She looked really dominant in this fight and she utilized her wrestling background and even though Macedo is a high-level jiu-jitsu practitioner, she had no qualms about taking her to the ground and punishing her there and and she was dominant for the first two plus rounds and then TKO'd her just dropping elbows in that third round. She had her in a neon belly position, which is where you have one leg sprawled away from your opponent. The other knee is planted, driving pressure into your opponent's belly or waist. And then she was controlling one wrist with her hand and then just dropping elbows on Veronica, who was trying to defend them. But to no avail, the stoppage came at 314 in the third round, and, and it was a good stoppage. I, I have to I have to give it to the rep there. Um, there was no need for her to take any further punishment there. Uh, the rest of these fights were insanely uneventful. So a lot of decisions, and there's usually nothing wrong with decisions. I don't mind when fighters are evenly matched. But Nick Hine versus uh, Tae Hyun Bang, for example, these guys, and I, I kind of am curious to look at the number of strikes thrown count because these guys were just swinging and missing the entire fight. And I guess Nick Hine won the decision, but, um, you know, I, I can't see either of these guys appearing on a main card again anytime soon. So with that, I want to jump into the community shot. So we'll go to the Twitter comments that I received and Leg, at Leg Kick MMA, who always contributes something to this show, um, wanted me to talk about Gustafson's future in the UFC. So as I said, I was very disappointed in his performance. So at Leg Kick MMA, which is a MMA update, Twitter handle, news and updates, usually pretty on point with his opinions. So what he said was he'd like to see Gustafson face Bader. So you have the winner of the co-main event, fighting the the winner of the fight right under him. And, you know, Gustafson said that he's in good shape. He feels okay to get right back in there. Obviously, Bader didn't take much damage in his fight against Latifi. So this fight makes sense. And you kind of have a little teammate drama here because Latifi trains with Gustafson. So maybe Gustafson would be interested in this fight to get revenge for Latifi. So I think that's an interesting matchup as well. I don't see any reason not to make it especially since the title picture is going to be tied up for a little while with John Jones out and Rumble Johnson uh, seeming to be the, the number one contender. So it looks like him and Cormier are going to square off pretty soon. So I, I don't have, you know, I don't have any reason to disagree with, with Gustafson fighting Bader. I think that's actually an interesting matchup. And I think Gustafson could utilize more of his stand-up skills. Obviously, he's not going to take Bader down easily. So uh, that's an interesting matchup there. Uh, the second community shot that I'll talk about is not a direct community shot, but I tweeted uh, John Gooden, who, for those of you who don't know, was the other broadcaster alongside Dan Hardy for this event. So John Gooden, at John Gooden UK on Twitter. And I asked him what he thought the biggest news stories were, and he said Bodycock Gate, which 
I didn't exactly know what he was talking about until I looked down his Twitter feed and I saw some people tweeting at him. So <laughs> this incident occurred during one of the undercard fights, which was Taylor Lapalus versus Leandro Issa, which I went back and rewatched again. I wasn't paying too close attention to this fight the first time. So this is a classic um, striker versus grappler match. So Leandro Issa was trying for the first three or four minutes of the first round to take this fight to the ground. And Lapalos had showed some spectacular takedown defense, and he was able to finally get away from Issa and, make, and create some distance, and he landed some clean shots. And then with one minute, five seconds left in the first round, John Gooden, the broadcaster, said he landed a nice body cock there. Now what he meant to say was body kick. And if he didn't bring this up to me, I probably wouldn't have noticed it because it was on the undercard. I wasn't listening. I was probably scrolling through my Twitter feed or doing something else while I wasn't paying attention to this. I was probably drinking some of my Northern Bayou cold brew coffee that I was having since this was a daytime fight card. And neither of these guys acknowledged the fact that he said body cock. But then Dan Hardy went in and he started to talk about 73 inches of reach for one of the fighters. So we go from body cock to talking about inches, and then twice in that round, John Gooden went on to talk about the difference between cockiness and confidence. And he said this twice, talking about Lapalos. So obviously cock on the brain for John Gooden, and I have to call you out on that since you know you brought it to my attention, so we have to talk about it. And he also said that Bader's knockout was a highlight of the card. But I think what we can really take away from this is that John Gooden thinks a body cock is a very effective move in mixed martial arts. So we'll create a hashtag out of this and we'll use it going forward. Uh, the other comment I got was from uh, at Peru Fini. So that's at P-E-R-U-F-I-N-I-S. And this is a buddy of mine on Twitter who he said that I should talk about Tough Latin America, so the Ultimate Fighter Latin America, which is coached by Chuck Liddell and Forrest Griffin. I actually haven't had a chance to watch any of this season yet, so I'm interested to hear what you guys think about it, if it's worth checking out. I did ask him, but I didn't have time to, to check his response or if he responded at all. But I'm definitely interested by that. Obviously, Chuck and Forrest two legends of the sport. What I did watch was the first episode of Ultimate Fighter 24 on Fox Sports 1. This is the season that's coached by Joseph Benavidez and Henry Cejudo, both uh, flyweight contenders. Both have lost to the champion, Demetrius Johnson. And the premise of this season, under any other circumstances, would be very exciting. You have 16 guys who are champions in their respective fight associations right now. So these guys are from all over the world and they, they all hold flyweight titles uh, wherever it is that they're fighting. Now, this this is kind of reminiscent of the only other time that an Ultimate Fighter winner was given a title shot, which was season four, the comeback season, which I'm sure everybody remembers. Matt Serra won the season and then he got a title shot against George St. Pierre and he knocked him out impressively. So this is the only other time an Ultimate Fighter winner has 
has gotten a title shot right off the bat. Obviously, a lot of Ultimate Fighter winners have gone on to win titles. Uh, Forrest Griffin, Rashad Evans, and obviously uh, middleweight champion Michael Bisbing. There, there are a couple of others you know, who fall into that category, but this is only the second time that an Ultimate Fighter winner is going to be guaranteed a title shot. What I don't like about this is the fact that the flyweight division is so cleaned out by Demetrius Johnson and there's just no competition for him. John Dodson lost to him twice. He had to move up to bantamweight, which I think is exciting. I think there's a lot of interesting matchups for him there. And he's actually fighting John Lineker coming up, which is fucking phenomenal, in my opinion. Um, so this season, I can't get too excited about it. But at the same time, these guys are all champions. They're all high-level fighters in their own right. So that does make it a little bit interesting. And, and the fights were really good. Not too many personalities uh, amongst this group of fighters. You know, they're all serious. So you, you don't have like the drunken drama, you, you know, that's reminiscent of the first couple of seasons of Ultimate Fighter when these guys were just getting drunk and, and breaking doors and, and the coaches were fighting with each other. And it seems like Benavidez and Cejudo don't really care for each other either. You know, they've had some comments back and forth, but, you know, nothing that's really building up a rivalry. It'll be kind of interesting to see them fight, but, you know, to what end? If either of these guys wins, are they going to get a title shot against Demetrius Johnson? Um, I don't know. I don't know if I'm really interested in seeing either of these guys fight Demetrius again. So, you know, we're kind of at a stalemate with this division, and you know, what could happen. The The best case scenario for this division, I think, is if one of these guys comes off this show and beats Demetrius uh, impressively, and then that would kind of mix things up a little bit. Um, I don't really see that happening. The The first fights were good. Um, Brandon Moreno versus uh, Alex Pantoja, which was the first fight, uh, really back and forth. So this is a seeded tournament-style uh, pairing. So, you know, the, the two coaches made their picks and then the other coach would get the, the guy seated opposite of them. So Alex Pantoa was selected by Henry Cejudo and he happened to be the number one seed. So the number 16 seed automatically goes to Joseph Benavidez, which is Brandon Moreno. And it was a very competitive fight. It was back and forth. Uh, Pantoja got a submission in the second round. Uh, and these guys actually turned out to be friendly with each other on the show. So, uh, kind of interesting, but overall, it's hard to get excited because you know what the end result of this season is going to be. It's going to be somebody getting dominated by Demetrius Johnson, and then it's going to be Cejudo and Benavidez fighting to see who's going to lose to Demetrius Johnson next. I, I hate to put it that way, but, um, you know, barring some kind of unexpected turn of events, which you never know what could happen in, in MMA, and, and that is what makes it the most exciting sport on the planet, but it's looking like that's the way it's going to go. Um, so anyway, lots to talk about, you know, CM Punk making his debut against Mickey Gall next week. I'll do another episode to kind of break that down, and hopefully I'll have some interesting new guests to to help me do that. And also the heavyweight championship, obviously, Stipe Miocic facing Alistair Overeem. That's going to be a really exciting fight, and I feel like it's getting overshadowed by CM Punk with all this documentary nonsense. But that's the fight I'm most excited for. 
next week. So we'll break that card down uh, a little bit closer to middle midweek or or the end of the week. I have some other things to talk about about Vermont as well. So the the breweries I visited were were all phenomenal. I went to Switchback Brewery, which is here in Burlington. I went to another brewery called Foam Brewery. Uh, the farmer's market, like I mentioned, where I picked up some excellent spirits and some cold brew coffee. And then there's a kind of a local legend of a beer that exists here in Burlington. And it's called Heady Topper, and it's made by a brewery called Alchemist. Now, this beer was actually sold out at the brewery. I couldn't find it there, so I tried to find it at a local beer distributor. And they said they only have it on Tuesdays and that people come in and line up early in the morning to get Heady Topper beer, which is an IPA beer. It, it's delicious. Uh, so the, <laughs> the short version of the story is I did find it at a local bar and I tried it. It's really, really tasty beer. But yeah, apparently, apparently they can't meet the demand with their supply. So it's really hard to find. It definitely almost impossible to find outside of Vermont, I would imagine. But yeah, the everywhere I talked to said that they get a limited supply on Tuesdays and they limit how much you can buy to two four packs. So if you have a craving for this stuff, it's hard to find. But if you find yourself up in Burlington, Vermont, um, definitely a lot of cool things to do here. The bike trail, which goes along Lake Champlain, is awesome. It's pretty much a full marathon circuit if you do it beginning to end. It's really scenic, really beautiful. Uh, a lot of great beers up here. Magic Hat Breweries up here as well. I didn't get a chance to try them out, but you know I've had Magic Hat plenty of times. But I'll talk about some of the other breweries in future episodes um, because I did pick up a few six packs to bring home with me. I want to try it and have a discussion with some buddies back home. You know, maybe the Portuguese Man of War. Maybe Jeff the Animal Wilson, who I'm missing on the show this week, both of these guys. Uh, and maybe I'll be talking to some other guests coming up. In any case, if you have any opinions, if you disagree with anything I said, let me know. I'm always interested. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at MMA on the Rocks. Also, you can check out MMAontherocks.com. We're on SoundCloud, we're on Stitcher, we're on TuneIn. And thanks for tuning in. So... Reach out to me, let me know what you're thinking and drinking, and that's all I got for tonight. Bye-bye.